Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Cato Institute. I know we have a few people still filtering in, but uh, we'll get started to encourage uh, them to head in. My name is Julian Sanchez. I am a senior fellow here uh, at the Cato Institute, uh, working primarily on uh, issues surrounding surveillance and digital civil liberties. Uh, in my previous life, I was a, a journalist for my sins. Um, and I remember my first uh, first job in journalism really was uh, at the Libertarian Magazine Reason, where in the early 2000s, where there was great enthusiasm for the power of the internet to uh, disintermediate news production. Um, there was a great amount of excitement about what uh, internally we called the death of gatekeepers. Um, and I remember even at the time having some reservations about whether this was likely to be an unmixed blessing. Um, revolutions in communications technology uh, have often been a long-term benefit, but extraordinarily disruptive in the short term. We're all uh, able to enjoy uh, our uh, lead speaker's fantastic book, thanks to the Gutenberg Press, but we should recall that uh, while it has uh, on net been uh, a great benefit to bibliophiles, um, there probably weren't bibliophiles before the Gutenberg Press. Um, it also was instrumental to kicking off uh, a period of enormous uh, political foment and instability uh, across the European continent when it first debuted. Um, we're seeing a similar uh, pattern of, we hope, uh, adaptation at present to uh, a new technological landscape, a new uh, ecosystem of information that flows with uh, unprecedented speed uh, and from uh, unprecedentedly decentralized sources. Uh, I think the last week has provided a kind of stark illustration of how complete the uh, divide between the media ecosystems in which Americans live has become. Uh, if you watch reactions on social media uh, to the Kavanaugh hearings or listened to uh, call-in shows, as I did on the way uh, back to Cato from uh, another event earlier today, it was striking that uh, people seem to have almost been watching two completely different events. Uh, and it's a very real question whether uh, we can have a functional democracy in a scenario where citizens disagree not just on values, that's an ineradicable feature of the human condition, um, but are fundamentally unable to agree even on very elementary factual questions. Um, and uh, there is I think, no one better we could have to uh, explore this question with than the two people uh, we have for you today. Um, Jochai Benkler, who is the uh, Berkman Professor of Entrepreneurial Legal Studies uh, at Harvard University, as well as co-director of the Berkman Klein Center for Internet Society, uh, is the author of the uh, subject book today, Network Propaganda, Manipulation, Disinformation, and Radicalization in American Politics. We will have that outside later if you uh, want to dive in, which I would urge you to, because it is a uh, fascinating uh, empirical study of the flow of information uh, in uh, American politics in 2018, and or at least in, over the last few years, um, written by uh, author of many important papers and books, but uh, perhaps most famously a book called The Wealth of Networks, a study of social production, uh, pure production, uh, or open source production as it's sometimes called. Um, it takes you know a certain amount of chutzpah to uh, give your book a title that evokes so directly um, Adam Smith's seminal Wealth of Nations, and I can tell you that uh, 
the, uh, the, inv the evocation in this case is not braggadocio. It is a, uh, uh, a work I imagine will be viewed one day as uh, perhaps equally seminal. Um, as a commenter uh, on that, we have Rebecca McKinnon, uh, who is the director of the Ranking Digital Rights Project at New America and uh, co-founder of the Citizen Media Network Global Voices. Um, as the former CNN bureau chief in Beijing, she is well equipped to talk about both uh, information flows and propaganda, um, something that informed her excellent 2012 book, Consent of the Network, The Worldwide Struggle for Internet Freedom. Uh, following our speakers, we will have uh, a, a brief uh, discussion among ourselves, and then I hope relatively soon open it up to a discussion with you, the audience, uh, in keeping with our theme. It is my very great pleasure and honor to welcome to the stage at the Cato Institute, Yochai Benkler. Uh, Thank you, uh, Julian, very much for that excessively kind introduction. Uh, uh, thank you for having me here at Cato. Thank you, all of you, coming out here at an end of an exhausting week uh, on a Friday afternoon. Uh, I appreciate every, each and every one of you. Um, I'm going to speak for just under 30 minutes and then stop and not finish describing everything, obviously, we have in the book but hope to capture um, uh, the major issues. Um, if there was a moment that captured the information disorder experience of uh, the election of 2016, it was the moment at which a 20-something-year-old man walks into Comet Pizza to investigate whether or not uh, a pedophilia ring is being run by the Clinton campaign uh, in uh, uh, the bowels of, of the pizza uh, place. Um, something that ended up, among other things, uh, uh, making 2016 uh, post-truth the word of the year of 2016 for the OED. Uh, more surprising, perhaps, than that is uh, the fact that a YouGov poll found that 46% of Trump voters thought that there was some truth to the pedophilia allegations. Uh, and by 2018, uh, we got 51% uh, of Republicans a couple of few weeks ago, a month ago, uh, telling a Quinnipiac uh, uh, poll that they thought that the media, news media were the enemy of the people, whereas 91% of Democrats thought, uh, thought that they were part of democracy. Uh, in the response to this, uh, we saw a range of explanations of how we arrived here, uh, primarily, well, uh, I won't point because uh, it doesn't show. Um, primarily uh, in the technological space. Some of them were commercial in nature, the Facebook algorithm, micro-targeting and Cambridge Analytica, fake news entrepreneur. Some were inherently technological like echo chambers. It's just the way human nature will self-select into uh, uh, like-minded people. Some of it was political in origin, whether foreign, Russian, or domestic alt-right meme generators on the periphery, all of it heavily mediated by technology. In the first set of studies that we started to publish a couple of years ago, we focused primarily on what came out of our data, which was a highly asymmetric structure between the left and the right, and that something really odd was happening with right-wing media. To give you a little bit of background, um, 
when we started doing studies before we looked at national politics several years ago about campaigns that you played such a role in, in Sopa Pepa, in uh, uh, net neutrality, some people could agree or disagree, the media were not as uh, asymmetric and certainly not as, as uh, uh, asymmetrically polarized. We came out with the results of a couple of years' worth of study in this book, Network Propaganda, which begins with a study of four million stories on American political national politics, starting from April 2015 and ending in January 2017, the end of the one-year anniversary of the Trump presidency. Uh, what we do is we put this system, uh, the, the book is with my co-authors, uh, Robert Farris, who's our uh, research director at Berkman Klein, and Hal Roberts, who's the technical lead on Media Cloud, the platform that we have been co-developing with our colleagues at the Center for Civic Media at MIT for a decade. Uh, what we do is we analyze the links, the tweets, the Facebook sharing, the text, and complement to some extent with TV archive of these four million stories and create a mixed methods approach where we use data science using network analysis and various approaches to text analysis. We use data-guided deep case studies, um, uh, and we try to look back at the political economy overall and how it plays out. Very quickly, the broad image of the data as a whole. Repeatedly what we see, however we measure it, is a highly asymmetric media ecosystem. We generate mostly two kinds of maps, link maps that are based on which sites link to other sites. This should be understood as an image essentially of the supply of media because it's about media producers linking to other media producers as sources of authority or insight. I'll show in a few minutes Twitter-based and Facebook-based networks that are more the demand side and the shape of attention uh, uh, more generally. What you see very clearly when we zoom, this is a link map. What you see very clearly is a, the central role of mainstream professional media across the spectrum from center to left with a relatively well-defined and insular media ecosystem on the right anchored in uh, Fox and Breitbart. When we zoom in, we see very clearly, as I said, that mainstream media is particularly important, that the right wing is quite distinctly separate, and it's not so, it's not accurate to describe it as right versus left as much as right versus rest. Essentially, the entire media ecosystem from the journal and uh, various business publications to um, um, uh, Talking Points Memo, uh, uh, Slate, MSNBC is anchored around in a more or less normal distribution the same set of sites. When we look at what happened to the link network in 2017, we see that the image is even starker we see a fairly clear increase in the prominence of center media, particularly business media, and we see Fox reasserting its relative importance relative to Breitbart and moving further right, representing the fact that it's losing links from the center right and the center, which means it's actually becoming a more extreme version of itself and aligning itself more clearly with what was the Breitbart side of the map. 
When we shift from looking at mapping the production side and authority among producers to the attention side, the demand side, we see the same patterns even starker. We see somewhat more, if you look here on the left, somewhat more symmetric polarization, but not to the same extent. We see Breitbart, this is during the election, playing a much larger role but we see the stark separation much more clearly. And when we move to Facebook, it becomes even more powerful. And you really see when Bannon says Facebook is what make Breitbart, uh, this comes out of our data very clearly. Finally, when you look at 2017 and Twitter and the shift in what happened to the demand, uh, we've really reached escape velocity. Uh, the center, the rest essentially becomes almost completely separated from the right. The right sees an increase in the position of Fox relative to Breitbart, but also the emergence of the Gateway Pundit, Truthfeed, Infowars, and True Pundit to much greater visibility than they were during the election. Uh, and for those of you who don't know uh, what they are, uh, they make Breitbart look like the gray lady. Um, a different way of visualizing the same data that gives, that emphasizes several of the points. Essentially, we have a bimodal distribution. We have two different kinds of distributions. On the right, as you move from the center right right, the more exclusively right wing you are, the more attention you get. In the rest, you have a more or less normal distribution centered around um, uh, mainstream media. Noisier, noisier on the attention side, on the demand side, but broadly correct. When you compare to 2017, uh, what you see interestingly on the left, uh, 2017 is represented by the gray lines. What you see interestingly on the left is a slight decline in attention to the most exclusively left outside, uh, uh, outlets and an increase in attention to center and center left outlets. What you see on the right is broadly speaking an increase in that second from the most right uh, pillar column, which is where Fox lives, at the expense of Breitbart, that identifies it there. There's a really interesting tell here, and I didn't give you the graphs that we have about the potential impact of uh, Facebook algorithm changes on left and right, but there's an interesting tell that the fall on the demand side, so this is the fall, what you're seeing there at the top left corner is the change in the position of the most right-wing sites based on use on media producers linking practices, which is completely independent of anything that social media do because it reflects what media producers are doing in terms of whom they're linked into and how similar it is to what we see here on Facebook. So essentially you're getting changes on the supply side as well as the demand side shifting over more to Fox to, from uh, Breitbart in particular. Uh, in Twitter, we don't see quite as big a shift from the rightmost to the second rightmost, reflecting that Gateway Pundit and Truthfeed, et cetera, have picked up some of the slack that Breitbart left off um, uh, as they declined. The most amazing or, or disturbing uh, um, um, uh, finding from our perspective is essentially the disappearance of the center-right. Uh, there simply is no attention. If you're, if you're trying to understand what really is the driving force of this, it's the disappearance of attention uh, to what, what would be center-right publications. When we study in detail and look at the case studies, essentially what's happening is 
that what we call the rest of the media ecosystem is operating on the media model that developed beginning in the 20th century and really stabilized in the mid-century, uh, which is uh, media outlets compete with each other for some combination of the scoop, sensationalism, constrained to some extent by professional uh, uh, norms, constrained to some extent by the fact that they compete with each other by pointing out uh, errors and mistakes. Uh, audiences are looking for identity-confirming news, but are stuck with these media that separate opinion from news and that are themselves constrained. So they moderately trust their media, but not completely. They get some confirming views, some disconfirming views. Politicians similarly are trying to sell identity-confirming narratives but are stuck in this framework where media still compete with each other on being able to point out, you got it wrong. What essentially we saw in uh, the right-wing ecosphere is a completely different incentive structure, what we call the propaganda feedback loop. Once some outlets begin to draw attention from audiences by simply feeding them the uh, identity-confirming news, uh, the competitive environment changes for the other outlets. And where we are now is at the end of what I'll describe in a few minutes, a 30-year uh, um, 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 process of outlets competing with each other on delivering identity-confirming uh, news, policing each other for deviation, and uh, policing politicians from deviation, and those who try to stand up and say, stop, here's actually the set of facts, at a bare minimum get ignored, the loss of, of, what, we, of what we see there as, as attention to the um, 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 center right, uh, or get attacked. This is what Julian wrote about already years ago as the epistemic closure uh, problem. And there's a certain point in the book where we basically point and say, this is what describes our data. So um, uh, uh, this is very clear. What, what it does is it delivers you these kinds of things from the period of the primary where Breitbart attacks Fox as uh, Fox News colluded with Rubio to give amnesty to illegal aliens. And Alex Jones, as usual, uh, does one better uh, by assuming that the brother and son of the two most recent Republican presidents has close Nazi ties exposed. Um, the dynamic, we do a lot of case studies in addition to the large uh, story. The dynamics are uh, quite clear. And here there's a, there's a case study, back to the question of the pedophilia that was so striking. Uh, there's a case study that actually in May, June of 2016, two almost symmetrically identical stories came out. One said that uh, there was a lawsuit that alleged that Donald Trump had raped a 13-year-old at a party run by Jeffrey Epstein. The other said that Bill Clinton had flown to Jeffrey Epstein's pedophilia island on the Lolita Express, and later on it developed into Hillary flew there six times and a variety of other things. When you look at some of the most uh, um, clickbaity sites on Facebook, at Occupy Democrats, Bipartisan Report, Addicting Info, Relative to Truth Feed, Ending the Fed, or Western Journalism, you see the symmetry. The supply at the extremes is there. When you look, when HuffPo actually uh, carries one piece that follows up on this, it gets a million and a quarter Facebook shares. There's demand, 
on the left, there's supply at the extremes. The critical difference between the left or the rest and the right in this regard is when you move from these extreme clickbait-only sites to the most linked to or the most tweeted sites. And in both cases, you get almost no coverage of either story um, uh, in the rest of the media ecosystem and high amplification uh, on the right. If we just dig specifically in, the debunking of the Trump raped a 13-year-old story comes within a day or so of when it shows up. It's anchored in Jezebel, in uh, uh, The Guardian, in The Daily Beast. These are the sources that basically say, no, there's an operation here. Here are the people who are trying to undermine Trump who made this up. Uh, when, on the other hand, uh, you look at the Clinton pedophilia, the source is Fox News. It's Malia Zimmerman on, online. It's then uh, replicated throughout uh, the media ecosystem. Within two days, it's on Brett Byers' report. Newt Gingrich is going on Hannity and Greta Van Susteren and repeating it. This becomes the most widely Facebook-shared story out of 6,500 stories on Fox that we have data for, uh, for the entire campaign period. Then we would step back and say, how was it that 46% of Republicans said there was something true about this? Don't look at Alex Jones, let alone at Russian trolls. This is the major source. Because when you look at actual uh, surveys of where people are paying attention, you also get very different attention patterns. So you have 40% of Trump voters saying that they get most of their news from Fox News, a much smoother distribution um, uh, or more diverse distribution uh, for people who were Hillary supporters. Um, when you look a couple of years before the election at another Pew survey of what people trust, you see that those people who, based on questions they gave, were identified as consistently liberal, are watching NPR, PBS, BBC, and New York Times in terms of the degree of trust that they have. They're equivalent by people who are, who are described by their answers as consistently conservative answers, have Fox News, Hannity, Limbaugh and Glenn Beck, whereas mostly liberal and mixed are practically um, uh, indistinguishable. So there's a point at which you say, if you think that, the, that PBS, the BBC, and the New York Times are the equivalents of Hannity, Limbaugh, and Glenn Beck in terms of uh, uh, verification, fact-based uh, journalism, et cetera, I think we can stop having the conversation. If you're with me and you think that these are two fundamentally modes of operating, then there's something for us to explain, and where does it come from? Um, just to tease a little bit of some of the richer case studies that we have to continue to emphasize this point about uh, uh, the central role of Fox. Looking at, the, at 2017, at the first year of the Trump presidency, what we see repeatedly is, A, that Fox News and around becomes the anchor for a media ecosystem that comes to the support of the president in the Trump-Russia investigation periodically. And second, that when Fox News take, takes it over, web-based measures of attention spike. So there's a close leadership correlation. So this is uh, uh, this broad frame of the deep state. What's interesting is that when we look from 2012 to 2016 at text analysis of this, you see very much the deep state is primarily focused on Egypt and Turkey, 
with an undertow of materials that came out of Mike Lofgren's book that focus on essentially libertarians and civil libertarians concerned about the national security state, irrespective of partisan uh, position. When you move to 2017, the language completely changes, emphasizing Trump, undermine, Hannity, Fox, uh, uh, leaks, uh, et cetera. Uh, in terms of timing, you see that there's the, the meme completely explodes in March of uh, 2017 relative to anything before. And when you zoom in on a variety of web measures, uh, open web media uh, stories, tweets, Google searches, you see that it takes off around the Flynn firing or at the Flynn firing and then its peaks, like the TV uh, uh, peaks, TV coverage peaks, uh, are around particular events during that framework. And we go a good bit into that. You look at the Seth Rich conspiracy, the conspiracy that a DNC staffer, rather than the Russians uh, hacking the DNC emails, it was a DNC staffer. You see, we, see we, we can find very early on either Russia inflected or, or Facebook clickbait inflected uh, stories from your newswire, from Gateway Pundit, from a variety of alt-right uh, Twitter handles. WikiLeaks offers a, a, a prize. But look at how much larger the attention is when in November uh, uh, of, of 2017, uh, Fox News completely repurposes the story. Uh, uh, at the, or completely restates the story, another story that starts online with Malaya Zimmerman and moves to uh, Fox DC, Fox and Friends, Hannity, etc. Similarly, when you look, we have a, a chapter that describes a brilliant piece of opposition research by Breitbart around Clinton Foundation selling rights to, supposedly uh, uh, permitting rights to uranium uh, that reflects this first period over here uh, in 2015, peaks right after the Democratic National Committee when Breitbart uh, releases the Clinton Cash movie version of it, but it's completely dominated by a repurposing late in 2017, which we see as happening both in Fox Business and Fox News, and the message is Russia got 20% of the US nuke industry. The story is essentially shifts very quickly from Clinton feed, uh, kickback to saying this is the real Russia story, not that. And the problem is that these three people were at the FBI and the Justice Department at the time and covered it up and didn't give the American people an observation. So you have a very clear repurposing of the story uh, to fit a new model that completely overshadows any prior version of the same story. The critical point here, Hannity says as, as he ends, is we've been telling you for years, journalism is dead. And in fact, this is true and critical to what we are saying here, is it's not technology, it can't be technology if you have such profoundly asymmetric patterns of populations that use the technology roughly in the same way. It has to be something else. And what you're seeing, this is the, the general social survey you have hardly any trust in journalism, and you see uh, an overall reduction up until about the mid-90s, gradual reduction from the post-Watergate period up until the mid-90s for both, and then an inflection point a couple of years after Fox News um, um, uh, breaks into business with the noise being essentially the party, the audience of the party whose president is in power trusts the media less 
at any given moment because there's critical coverage. Origins. Can't forget, by 1993, Rush Limbaugh was already being described ambiguously, tongue-in-cheek, uh, uh, leader of the opposition, uh, um, uh, member of the, uh, honorary member of the freshman class of 94. Pew surveys by 96 are showing roughly equivalent proportions of listeners to talk getting their news from talk radio or Christian broadcasting that we see today from Fox News and uh, Christian Bro and 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 uh, talk radio. So the patterns of of um, uh, asymmetric approach uh, are there already. Uh, what you see essentially, and and we spend a lot of time, uh, well, a chapter in the book going through changes in technology regarding UHF and satellite and cable capacity and the deregulation of the various uh, measures uh, across them and the changes in the political culture and how each of these fed into each other. Because the critical question, the critical question is what changed in the environment that permitted Rush Limbaugh to become the first enormously successful business model since Father Coughlin was pushed off the air at the beginning of World War II uh, to actually make uh, the business work. Um, and uh, the answer is that when you have lots of channels, you can no longer compete on sharing by, through a mainstream message. You can do much better by sharing a message that is intensely unique to a large minority. And that's essentially what Rush Limbaugh proved as a model, as CNN was proving the 24 News Hour channel as a model, which created the space in which, to, in which Fox News emerged. By the time the commercial, as opposed to the amateur uh, blogosphere, uh, which had a very different structure, as Julian's reminding from the period that he was at Reason, uh, by the time the commercial media, when BuzzFeed or, uh, um, uh, or HuffPo emerged as commercial models, um, there was no left equivalent yet to Limbaugh, and uh, this is 2005-ish. Um, there's no left equivalent yet. By the time Breitbart comes online in 2007, there's already a well-established 10 and 20 years completely different competitive environment, and they need to adapt to different models. So that the earliest data we have in our system is from the month before the 2012 election, and it's practically identical. Uh, so. Critically here, the point is not technology determined this structure. We can't say technology determined this structure because we have such highly asymmetric patterns of behavior over time and patterns of belief over time. We need to come up with some model of why the economics changed as they did over time, and that's the story we tell here. Very briefly, a couple of more points, and then I'll close. Up till now, I've said nothing on what it was that made Breitbart so big during the election, and have said nothing about both candidate and President Trump uh, and his implication. We have a deep chapter on what was the single most important topic of the election, immigration. You start with a background in which 2012 RNC says we're not going to do immigration because it undermines us. And yet it becomes the major successful model. What's happening? 
We describe how it's essentially a duet between the candidate and Breitbart, which helps Breitbart become so central. Breitbart publishes, this is the proportion of sentences to all sentences, overwhelmingly more about immigration than any of these other media. When we map from 2012 until January 2018, several of the top sites on the right, as well as CNN as a control, what you see is that Breitbart really spikes in early 2014 and carries the topic throughout the debates over comprehensive immigration reform, drops off dramatically after Obama releases the executive action policy, is back together with everybody more or less until the day on which Trump announces uh, his campaign with, uh, with uh, uh, many of them are rapists uh, statement and continues to drive. But when you look at the peaks of coverage, whether it's Breitbart or not, even if Breitbart was pushing it, it was very much the, the, the chorus master were public announcements by Trump. So what you get here is a, a duet, as, as, as we think of it, between the candidate producing statements that are considered by many to be outrageous. They are amplified and validated and framed by a set of media that are very supportive. And then they are reported on externally. What is it that um, um, uh, Breitbart is talking about? Between two-thirds and three-quarters of the most linked, tweeted, and Facebook-shared uh, stories are, uh, are focused on uh, uh, anti-Muslim uh, sentiment. When we do this more structurally and large-scale data analysis, uh, what we see very clearly is what distinguishes the white supremacists is their frank anti-Semitism. What distinguishes the right-wing sites is their focus on Islam. The center-right is somewhere between Islam, libertarian, tax, welfare, uh, whereas the center and center-left are focused primarily on Latin American immigration with the more left you are, the more there is commentary on Syrian refugees and, and, and the Islamophobia of the other side. When we use a different way to map sites by the text they use on immigration, it becomes even clearer that you have a clear center-right approach that is distinct both from the right and from the cluster of what we call the rest, that the white supremacists are in a completely different plane than everybody else in terms of the text they use, and that Fox has this odd strategy of segregating its very clearly right uh, uh, materials online on Fox Na Nation and Fox News Insider and, and playing both of these in both of these uh, corpora. But that again, the rest clusters, and now this is a completely third and distinct way of looking at whether there's polarization or not. It's about the text rather than links or tweets. And again, uh, you see this um, uh, clustering. Final point, mainstream media and what did it do in these situations? Um, this is from September 2016, the words that Gallup got people to see most associated with Clinton versus Trump. And Clinton is clearly email and scandals. Uh, and when we look at where this happened, and I'm happy in the, in, in, in the conversation or the Q&A to go, we have a chapter on why we think, yes, the Russians really have been trying very hard, but no, the Russians didn't flip the election. Yes, the clickbait fabricators were there, but no, they weren't the ones who clicked the election. Yes, the Facebook algorithm is there, but not this time. Happy to go into all of that then. 
A little bit of what you see here is just that most of the coverage of email was driven by well-meaning civil servants releasing all sorts of things and well-meaning journalists covering them and this creating a steady flow of, of, of concern with the DNC and Podesta email dumps playing a role that I'm happy to go into. But to me, what's more interesting here is that when you look at traditional, at, at only at the top 50 mainstream media organizations, it's clear that Clinton is all about scandals, not issue, and Trump is much more about issues and not scandals. Both sides are getting equal opportunity negative coverage from mainstream press. It's all negative. But for him, it's his substantive issues. For her, it's the scandals. And this is a critical question that professional journalism has to deal with of how does it enact objectivity without falling back on neutrality in the face of asymmetric, um, um, of, of asymmetric propaganda. Let me conclude with this. Um, in the immediate aftermath of the uh, election and in the past year, as we're seeing, as we're standing on what seems to be a real crisis of democracy, we've been looking for easy, I think, answers. Easy in the sense that they're apolitical. Techno an out-of-control technology has taken this out of our hands. Uh, we're under attack from foreign forces. Uh, I think it's critically important for um, us to look and say, we did it to ourselves. We are the source. And to me, there are two constituencies that I primarily see myself as speaking to coming out of this. One are mainstream journalists who allowed themselves to be captured in this asymmetric uh, uh, system and to uh, replicate and amplify a context in which asymmetric propaganda means that neutrality is complicity. But much more fundamentally, it's to Republicans who do not see themselves in an anti-trade, anti-immigrant, populist rhetoric and try to understand how we got here. From my perspective, a universe in which instead of 40% of Trump voters getting their news from Fox News. They get it from the Wall Street Journal with its clear separation of editorial from news and a clear sense of an anchoring in reality is vastly more important than anything else we could have to actually begin to pull back from the abyss that we seem to be falling to. But until we see that this is not about just symmetric polarization, it's not primarily about technology. It's not primarily about Russia. It's about an internal long-term dynamic against which we need to push. We won't be able to start solving the problem, and we won't be able to pull back out of the abyss. Thank you. Thanks so much. Yeah, hi. Um, the, this book is, is uh, really, really important just in terms of the data and facts you bring to bear um, uh, to, to contribute to a conversation that's full of a lot of emotion and conjecture and people just speaking from their own personal experience of Twitter or Facebook without sort of having some scholarship behind it. And, and so this is uh, extremely important. Um, 
I'm going to throw out a few kind of questions and provocations uh, <laughs> because that's, I think, my role. Um, and, and while I agree with you, this is not about Russia. What, what has happened in this country is not Putin's doing. Um, uh, you know, he's certainly a character in the, in the drama, but as you point out in the book. But uh, uh, I agree with you, we have to look at ourselves um, and, and take responsibility. Um, but I, I do want to place this in a, in a somewhat broader international context, because I, I wonder if a bit of kind of international, my background originally was in comparative politics. And so taking a, a little bit of an international look at um, kind of the evolution of online disinformation campaigns globally and, and that um, they did not start in the United States. In fact, I was target of an online, online and offline sort of, you know, sort of uh, uh, online media and offline media collaborating with, with one another uh, to dis discredit foreign journalists as in, in China in 2000. Right, and and it was very similar kinds of things, you know, troll army, and this they didn't even have social media, but it was in chat rooms and websites, sort of troll armies, um, uh, kind of fake leaks of purported transcripts of uh, what what was claimed to be uh, um, uh, police tapping of my phone, and like this is a transcript of, of what the CNN Beijing bureau bureau chief said, but there was sort of an effort to. To, 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 basic, to make a long story short, at, in 2000, uh, by the Chinese government to discredit foreign media in general and, and CNN in particular by saying that we had encouraged members of the Falun Gong religious group to commit suicide by immolating themselves in, in Tiananmen Square because we wanted the story. And then all kinds of evidence was produced that kind of got leaked online, leaked... Um, and and uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then, you know, the national media kind of then reinforced it in various ways and, and so on. And, I, you know, this is not about that. Um, but um, in the early thousands, you saw in a number of author authoritarian countries online disinformation campaigns and propaganda being used both against external uh, media but also domestic critics um, to discredit criticism of the regime. Um, we saw in Syria with the Syrian Electronic Army uh, and, and Assad's kind of very... Um, uh, very organized tactics. Um, we've we've seen in a range of other countries, Russia and and so on. But I the reason why I bring this up um, is that there does seem to be a connection in kind of why these things are successful. People don't trust have have a bunch of reasons why they don't trust existing media. And you've talked in your book about how. Um, uh, societies where there is a robust information and news ecosystem and where there's a fair amount of trust in media tend to be more immune, uh, or that's, that's sort of your hypothesis. Um, and, and certainly um, online propaganda and disinformation where it has been most successful kind of around the world, um, Hungary, you know, and especially in democracies that are eroding, um, has has been in places where there's all kinds of problems, not just media ecosystem problems, but failures of political economy, failures of governance, you know, all, all kinds of things. Um, and and you're absolutely right that 
yeah, we all need to look at ourselves and how we contributed to the complete lack of trust um, in society. But coming coming to the mainstream media um, and, and sort of the relationship between uh, the platforms and the media, um, one of the things I was sort of curious to get your th thoughts on a bit more just has to do with the political economy of news. And um, while you've pointed out that, well, you know, target advertising and the ecosystem of targeted advertising uh, is is not the only thing to blame in in this this ecosystem. The business model of news media more broadly um, has been an issue for a long time and has contributed to some of the problems of reporting that we've seen, where cable news is just fixated on whatever is most titillating as opposed to kind of digging down and trying to figure out the facts um, of, of the news media um, uh, looking for what's going to bring the most traffic as opposed to what's going to be in the greatest public interest to investigate. Uh, and, and so I'm interested in your thoughts about kind of the political economy of news more broadly and the extent to which you feel that a healthy news ecosystem might require media that is not reliant on ratings and advertising um, exclusively or, or at least to have parts of the media ecosystem that are independent of that for their survival. Um, and, uh, and also, I, I guess one, one other place where news media need to kind of look at themselves in the mirror a bit more is how we got to this point where targeted advertising and the data that is collected about your users and the ability of advertisers or anybody promoting content to, to access such detailed profiles of online users, how that came to be, and the role that mainstream media organizations played in creating this ecosystem by basically, you know, as we got into the social media world and New York Times and everybody started getting on Facebook, getting on Twitter, there was very, almost no pushback from these large news companies asking the uh, social media companies, what are you doing with user data? You know, how are how are are you kind of handling this in a way that's responsible? You know, no pushback. It's just sort of like jumping right in, and of course, participating um, in in the kind of advertising and tracking ecosystem that has again helped to enable targeted disinformation campaigns in many ways. Um, and you point to a, a number of, of solutions, both in terms of transparency and, and regulation that requires a lot more transparency. Um, but again, I wonder if, if there needs to be a step more, step further around innovation in the business model and whether, whether this requires investment and leadership um, and, and incentives um, that that won't just sort of happen naturally. So, for example, you know, if you take a very different type of ecosystem, our natural ecosystem, right? There, there has been a recognition that overdependence on fossil fuels is bad for society, and we needed to innovate in terms of how what types of energy we're dependent on, right? If we want to have a have an environment we can live in. Do we need to similar levels of investment and commitment by government and by the private sector to actually change the business models that drive our news and information 
ecosystem if democracy is going to survive. So, so that's kind of one really provocative question to ask. Um, and, and one other kind of related provocation has to do with the issue of neutrality that, that you've talked a lot about and that, that um, you, you write about very convincingly. Um, and I wonder, you know, as you say, neutrality does not, neutrality equals complicity. You know, if you're being neutral, you're actually helping to perpetuate the, the problem. Um, and uh, with the news media, you talk about, yeah, just saying, you know, they say this and they say that, you know, helps to exacerbate this problem. But I wonder if we have a similar problem with neutrality with social media platforms. So when, say, Facebook or Twitter say, we're going to be completely neutral about the types of information that are flowing through, um, is that naturally going to perpetuate the, the problems and distortions that we have in the information ecosystem, and does there need to be an intervention? And of course, that gets politically very sticky very fast, but I, I guess the point is, the, the, the provocative question is, by opting to be neutral, are the platforms actually opting to support a certain outcome? And do they need to be more honest that that's what they're doing? And if that's not the outcome they want to see, do they need to actually commit to a different outcome and engineer for it? So I'll stop there. Uh, <laughs> provocative indeed. Uh, let me just sort of put in place the, the anchor three things that I take, and you'll tell me if I'm either missing a huge one or, miss, more importantly, mischaracterizing what you said. The first is the question of, this is very America-focused. Look at things that are happening in the world. That has to inform what we're doing. How do we think about that? The second is, actually, the four that I can think of. The second is um, targeted advertising in particular. Um, the, uh, yes, you talk about all these other things, but at the end of the day, targeting advertising and, and, target, and, and targeted marketing influences news. What do you say about that? And the third and fourth are different aspects of the same problem, which is can we go to some powerful entity, the state or the public in terms of non-market-based uh, media, or the platforms in terms of very powerful gateways to husband this media ecosystem in a way that will lead us to a more healthy framework. Is that an unfair? No, that's not unfair. I guess I, guess I would just add, um, because I didn't before, or if we don't sort of want a powerful, centralized, non-market thing to create the correction, do, do we need more grassroots interventions and, and sort of movement type things um, or social social efforts that that could could also engineer the connection the, the, or kind of push for the correction or you know there might be bottom-up interventions as well but it, it seems that there needs to be an intervention here from some direction okay so so let me try to take these one by one and not take half an hour this time around sorry about that um, first. Absolutely, you're right on the question of trying to understand international differences and, and cross-national differences. Um, 
We learned from our work very quickly that if all you do is data analysis without deep knowledge of the media and political system that you're studying, you're going to misunderstand or misinterpret what's going on. So we started out by getting what we think is very, very good at a system we know well. Um, if what we are, if, if what we say is right, then we should not expect to see the same thing in other countries. Because if, if the function, if, the, if, if what's happening is that social media and the net are wrapping themselves around uh, institutions, um, uh, practices, politics of different countries and adapting themselves to those, we should see differences. So, as you say in the book, uh, one of the things we note is the fact that Germany, for all of the rise of the IFD, uh, did not see a similar phenomenon. The net was used very effectively to mobilize groups that were um, um, uh, very um, um, external to the mainstream, but that didn't bleed into an overall uh, uh, um, um, influence on the media ecosystem. I've spent literally all of my uh, uh, professional career up until I, I got pulled into this, thinking about decentralized solutions to problems that initially thought required centralization, to criticizing powerful institutions like professional media, like uh, uh, the state, like large uh, uh, market companies, in favor of highly decentralized processes of voluntary cooperation. Um, so it was, a, it was as a very nasty surprise uh, to find myself where, where this turned out to have been actually uh, uh, much more successful. So I think the net continues to be, and nothing in our data disagrees or, or is inconsistent with the idea that the net consists, is, 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 continues to be an important platform for mobilizing fringe groups that are unattractive to the mainstream. And their unattractiveness can be left, it can be right, it can be um, wacky, whether it's anti-vaxxers or whatever it is. Um, sorry if I'm offending anyone. Um, so there's clearly some distinct liberatory potential in the net that can be used in ways that liberate very nasty or very attractive characteristics. Um, the question, though, is how you get to population-level dynamics that shape electoral outcomes. And that's what we really focused on here. What is it that converts media from being about fringe talking to itself and mobilizing itself and recognizing itself and generalized to a population level. So when you look at France and at the, effort, at the Russian efforts with Macron leaks to influence, you have a media ecosystem that contained it. You also have a political system that contained Le Pen, just like it does in Sweden containing the Sweden Democrats and in Germany contain, containing the IFD, because the political system doesn't have this two-stage winner-take-all model that a highly engaged, uh, maybe plurality, maybe not, of Republicans can A, first step, capture the Republican Party, and then capture the winner-take-all uh, election, which is essentially what we saw here. So yes, we need international studies, 
One of the things that we write in our solutions chapter is, I don't know what Germany ran with the Nets DG, with their, with their net regulation law so quickly, when at least if we're right in our data, they're under a lot less threat. The threat to them is a lot less immediate, however unattractive their far right is, uh, for this moving from the fringe to the mainstream. Um, but you need to essentially do this in every country. If you look at the Philippines, I'm sure Facebook is pretty much everything there is. If you look at India, very hard to study, but you're gonna have to go look at WhatsApp and vernacular TV uh, rather than at Facebook or at Twitter or at the open web. So different countries will be different. We need to understand them. It's important. I, I worry that a lot of countries are looking at the US and are projecting from misdiagnosis here legitimation of all sorts of crackdowns, some of them well-intentioned but misguided, others of them ill-intentioned by authoritarians. Everybody suddenly wants to fight fake news and defines their own fake news. So to me, a major outcome of our study is stop. The internet didn't do it to you, and when Duterte says he wants to go after fake news, it's got nothing to do with technology. That's for Not sure. that we don't know. <laughs> um, the second point you made about targeted marketing. Obviously, in my talk and in the book, we focus on the thing that is most contrary to what we see as the prevailing narrative in contemporary American political debate, which is technology did it, or the Russians did it. Um, but a critical part of what we find is that the net is wrapping itself, and social media are wrapping itself around this, this structure, and you get the replication. There's no question that if there's one thing that does seem that we don't have the data for it and we would need a lot more transparency into Facebook in order to actually measure it as opposed to just intuit it, um, there's no question that there's really, there's real danger in targeted marketing that's driving very narrow segmentation of markets in order to manipulate people into holding certain beliefs. And there's a whole structure of uh, that, that develops in behavioral marketing for commercial purposes that then flips over to the political side. Um, our position in the book is that what we need is radical transparency about who is buying what, what they're doing, and to make that searchable so that people who research it and people who are opponents of each other can point and say, here's what they're doing to you and here's why they're doing to you, and people who don't want to have it done to them uh, understand what's happening to them. So to me, that's a major part of what we need is radical transparency about who's advertising, who's manipulating, how they're doing it, what the measurements are. Um, and I think these are real problems. I think they will be central to the regulatory agenda going forward. And I think that um, they will be critically important in a decade. I don't think they explain mm -hmm. either 2016 or, for that matter, 2008, 2012, 2016. I don't think they'll explain 2018 and 2020 and 2022. Um, last point. Who is going to solve? I think the real challenge, and this is not from the book, this is much closer to the longer term work that I do more generally. I think the real challenge is that if you sort of look at the trajectory, and we're sitting in this auditorium uh, uh, particularly, if you look at the trajectory of basic uh, beliefs about how we solve problems, you see a 
30, 35 years post-war uh, managerialism or authority-based claim that expertise and administration can solve if you simplify the world so that you can understand how it works and then command it to behave, you'll solve the problems. Then you see the attacks, both left and right, based obviously here on Hayek, um, uh, about the impossibility of doing that and reintroducing market structures to do it and moving to market-based regulation. Um, I think the world we grew up in, in uh, uh, at least at the professional intellectual level of the internet moment, very much developed a sense of uh, skepticism, both about price signals and about um, uh, administration, and focused and leaned into much more heavily using the framework of the commons on cooperation and, co and conversation and continuous learning and adaptation uh, and exploration in the commons. I think we're stuck now with a problem that, broadly speaking, we know that the state fails, we know that markets fail, and we know that fully decentralized social processes uh, uh, fail. Every one of them has its own failure modes. Uh, none of them is perfect. Uh, we don't, at the moment, have an answer for how we construct a system that leverages the best of the state, the best of the market, and the best of the distributed social processes. Uh, we haven't even had that conversation of how you construct such an institutional system. But when I hear people talking about we need public funding of media, I think of the recently appointed uh, head of RAI in Italy, uh, uh, who, who seems to be a close uh, clone of Alex Jones. Um, uh, and so Salvini appointed him. Um, um, and what used to be a Pepe Grillo joke now becomes a, a reality. Um, and when we look at market players and I see the pressures of uh, Apple and Facebook and Spotify all lining up to pull Alex Jones, I worry about market incentives too. Maybe they're right, maybe they're wrong. I don't know who's tomorrow. And when we look at distributed social processes, I see Gamergate. I see um, um, uh, disinformation campaigns, both from state actors, because they're certainly there, and from uh, private actors that are just out to make a buck. Uh, and those don't seem to be perfect either. And I don't know the solution, but I think it's going to have to come from a completely new mixture of institutions that combines all three. Indulge me for a few minutes before I throw it open uh, to jump in here. You were reminding me, you know, that uh, uh, about a dozen years ago, uh, I was asked to consult for a uh, soon-to-be-founded uh, media outlet that I think an NDA probably prohibits me from naming. <laughs> um, but I was asked to sort of suggest some sort of blue sky of things about how they might do things. Uh, and I wrote up a quick memo uh, drawing quite heavily from Wealth of Networks suggesting that uh, they might try to develop mechanisms for uh, allocating different parts of the editorial process or the news gathering uh, and, and validation and editing process to either expert or peer mechanisms. That is, you might have an app that enabled people to uh, upload video and photos or, or to conduct interviews. You might have 
a kind of group hive mind process for supplying questions to kind of ad hoc editors in the field. Um, you know, the same sort of copy editing on a kind of wiki-like model. Um, and that you, again, you'd have kind of ex expert and, and peer-produced or distributed components uh, for different, different phases of, of that process. Um, and they, sort of, I think, said, well, thank you, that's very creative, and, and ignored most of that. Um, <laughs> As they often do. But, uh, but what, what occurs to me is, on the one hand, um, that, that, um, that uh, a model like that hasn't, we don't really see the harnessing of uh, these sort of peer production mechanisms in a, in a very healthy way. If I think about kind of peer produced content in the news space, I, I tend to think, frankly, of Pizzagate and QAnon. Um, this is, you know, a case where you really genuinely have a kind of open community uh, sifting through evidence to try and produce a, a kind of consensus about what's right. Um, so I'm wondering, you know, do you see, and I think I should say incidentally, and I would push back, a I guess, a little bit about the idea that this isn't, you know, it's not just technology. I think what you establish in this book very powerfully is that there is an asymmetry about how and where um, misinformation problems are manifesting in a new technological landscape. But I think that sort of establishes that changes in technology are not sufficient to produce this kind of pathology. Um, but I don't know if that's the same as saying that, that they're not a, an important precondition. It's, you know, I, I think of uh, you know, kind of pre-cable television, right? Everything was kind of three networks. Everything is kind of bland because you're and, and sort of middle of the road because you're trying to appeal to a very broad audience. Uh, and then cable sort of unleashes the the flourishing of prestige drama. So it's a very healthy. You get Mad Men and Game of Thrones and and um, things that do not appeal necessarily to a huge audience, but that a small number of people really really like and are willing to pay for. Um, and so that's been most people think healthy in the television sector and maybe less healthy in. Uh, in news, it strikes me that you know what we've seen is an efflorescence of kind of pure um, production, and I guess the revelation of an untapped market for certain types of news that part of the existing media ecosystem was sort of more willing to to take in. Um, I guess I wonder is there is there a way we can try to harness some of the kind of pure production processes you've talked about um, in a way that is, uh, I guess. More, more civically healthy than QAnon. So <laughs> I think that's setting the bar pretty low. <laughs> Maybe that I can figure out. Um, so a uh, uh, um, couple of different things. First of all, uh, yes, technology does matter. Um, I telegraph and ran through, um, um, I absolutely, when we actually describe the political economy, um, we do go fairly clearly between how particular technological moments intersected with particular regulatory uh, decisions, intersected with particular changes in the political culture uh, to shape the market in such a way that made it possible for Limbaugh to develop. And there's no question that if you didn't have certain developments in satellite ground distribution, you wouldn't have been able to have certain kinds of um, 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 cable networks uh, develop, or you wouldn't have been able to have syndication of Limbaugh as you did. So I, I'm not, the, the point is most, 
The reason that I made the point as I made it, as clearly as I made it, is because what I see as the background view that's dominant in contemporary conversations is uh, that technology is an exogenous, deterministic force that ultimately pushes things, and all we have to do is adapt to it. And I think that's wrong. Yeah. Uh, but absolutely, if I, if I came across as saying technology doesn't matter, that is not what we write, and that's not what I think. Uh, on the question of harnessing peer production, um, Yes, I think it's going to have to be an important part of the solution if we are not going to simply create new points of control. Um, where, uh, on the QAnon question, look, um, I don't think that the conversation about police shootings of black men would have been as it was if you didn't have citizens out there with their mobile phones capturing real video of things that really happened, independent of the mobilization, just on the reporting side of yeah. things. Uh, because now we have sensors everywhere as opposed to editors deciding, go over there with your camera. Uh, so that's, to me, a very different uh, uh, model um, um, uh, already. Uh, and it's not just because one is sympathetic to my worldview and the other isn't. Um, so at the moment, the platforms are, be, are, are one of the affordances that the platforms are developing uh, are ways of having the users participate moderately, mostly by flagging. So the, so the users essentially become the... the I think I've seen affordance is a sort of a technical term that I don't know if the Sorry, is uh, thank you. Um, um, a, a, an element of a technological design or of a system that allows you to do certain things, affords you certain things that you can do. So um, 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 a car has some affordances and constraints in terms of how quickly you can go and what sort of infrastructure you do or don't need, and some cars have some or another, however much you are going to want to go off-road in a very low, heavy, uh, uh, broad sedan, it's not going to work. Those are not affordances it has. The Jeep has them. That's what I, that's what I mean. Um, that was not an advertisement. Uh, <laughs> I used it in the generic term rather than the trademark term. Um, so that's the beginning, but as we've seen, these two are subject to attack. So you can have... Um, uh, you can have the 50 cent army uh, in China, if you're talking international, showing up as lots and lots of different people suddenly flooding a zone. Uh, so they'll have to be designed carefully. Uh, but for example, when I say that advertisements need to be, uh, that, that targeted advertising needs to be transparent, that we need a data set that is comprehensive and uh, uh, valid for what people are trying to do and for whom, um, I think one of the ways in which we're going to need to police that will be having large, diverse groups of people actually look at it and query it. Uh, you're not going to get that from having a, 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 just a professional ombudsperson uh, uh, do it. On the production side, um, I thought so too. Uh, oh, oh, and that's actually not fair. So... At the risk of seeming extremely um, uh, biased on this one, I actually think that the, quote, rest of the media ecosystem that we find 
is not a crazy uh, 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 facsimile of what I long ago called the network fourth estate uh, in the sense that you do have mainstream media, you have a lot more um, 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 smaller scale commercial and non-commercial media feeding into it. You have a good bit of discussion on, on user platforms. Uh, but critically, it's the interaction between these more socially based, socially oriented rather than marketing oriented, uh, some public, uh, uh, some philanthropically funded organizations and the professional media that actually each one helps to keep each other um, in check. And it's the lack of that on the right that I think leads them to just feed each other so that both the fully distributed media and the professional media just um, um, amplify and exaggerate each other and compete each other for how extreme the statements are. Hey, Rebecca, uh, I think, Rebecca wanted, wanted to make a comment, and then uh, after that, we will uh, be turning to you for questions. Yeah, just uh, in defense of, you know, there is some good distributed peer production out there. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, just to add a couple other examples, I, I think at the local level, you know, you have local news sites that, that rely very heavily on community contributions of different kinds um, in this country, um, and some of them are experimenting with you know, interesting business models as well. Um, but but to get international on you again, um, you know, peer, peer production in many contexts is, is the only thing that is, is the main alternative to the state-controlled narrative. Um, and of course, Tunisia would not be a democracy today, you know, uh, with if it, if it hadn't, you know, the Arab Spring um, for, for all its troubles, you know, that was a peer production, you know, distributed peer production of media that enabled people to know that this fruit seller had committed suicide in Tunisia and that got the ball rolling and, and so on. So so there, there are a lot of communities, and, and I'm going to embarrass my friend Ivan Sigel there, who's executive director of, of Global Voices. Um, there are a lot of communities around the world where, um, yeah, alternatives to state media, but also alternatives to extremist yeah. Um, propaganda is primarily coming from various forms of either non-professional non or quasi-professional peer production of different kinds. Um, and, and just to, to kind of feed into this whole kind of U.S., you know, what do we do about disinformation mm -hmm. conversation, one of the things that that concerns me is that one of the interventions that's often talked about is, oh, we, you know, we need to have sort of trust signals for, you know, established media organizations that have an address and the reporter's name is registered and so on. And this will discriminate yeah. against the, the peer-produced peer dissident media, or not even just dissident, just civil society, um, not only uh, in... in Places where government is weak or authoritarian, but but also just in terms of all kinds of communities in this country who, you know, don't aren't represented by uh, media organizations that have an address, um, and there's many such communities. So yeah, I think it's. I mean, it's, first thing is, is whether it's government or not, it is difficult to think of a kind of technical architectural solution to sort of the problem of viral spread of misinformation um, that involves 
you know, relying on the platforms as a locus of control um, that does not simultaneously empower repressive regimes to exactly. uh, exterminate, essentially, um, non-state media. Uh, let me uh, turn to you all now uh, for the uh, finale. Uh, my colleague, uh, Ugana Wakedi here, will be going around with the microphone, so please just wait uh, to be recognized. Uh, introduce yourself if you are so inclined, and I would uh, enjoin everyone to begin to um, uh, keep questions brief and uh, terminate them with a sort of rising inflection that <laughs> indicates you have uh, uttered a query as opposed to a concealed, uh, uh, concealed speech. Um, I suppose let's start with Mike Godwin. Hi, uh, Mike Godwin, R Street Institute. Uh, so I, I was reminded as you were talking about a failure of administrative, uh, uh, sort of failures of administration, failures of sort of market analyses, and failures of of, of, of distributed system of another. Uh, uh, triad that also has come up in the context of thinking about regulating social media, which is Jack Balkin's series of papers uh, culminating in this one, in its latest one in May. I've read them all, and I'm writing my own paper on his papers. And I, I, I think one of the things that, and, and I want to, I'm asking you if you think this might be correct, is that um, I, I think that w we tend to look for the simplistic answer or the single focal point or the single one or two focal point points, and that leads us into policy mistakes and law mistakes and, and free speech mistakes, like trying to focus on platforms or trying to focus on getting government right or trying to focus on maybe everybody could contribute more to Wikipedia. I mean, it, <laughs> so my question is, how do we communicate the fact that these problems are ecosystem problems rather than simple focal point problems? I hope that question's clear. Uh, one day when I grow up, I'll know how to answer that. I can't believe that, that, that I didn't take advantage of you sitting in the front row when I had that image of, of Jeb Bush close Nazi ties. <laughs> <laughs> so it goes. Um, um, so I'm curious about your evocation of Jack Balkin, who's been focused very much on information fiduciaries and the idea that uh, the platforms become information fiduciaries and um, reflect a certain set of social understandings of what's appropriate and see themselves in that role. And which way you see him cutting on this question of ecosystem? So, so I don't know, if, is it okay for me to just go back and forth? Yeah, I'm happy to answer that question. Sure, I mean, sure. yes. Thank you. So uh, uh, just having reread all, all, all the papers, starting with the information fiduciary ones and, and maybe even some earlier ones that Jack has done in the last five years, uh, uh, if you look at the May paper, what he does when he says, that, which is the free speech is a triangle paper, it's actually focused primarily on speech, but he integrates the information fiduciaries uh, a notion that he has a separate paper on and that he also uh, worked with on a, in, a, in a public article with Jonathan Zittrain. Uh, and, and the so so there the the diff, if you think of the free speech ecosystem as at least triadic and certainly more complex than just us versus government or us versus corporations, uh, then information fiduciary is a critical piece to understanding it. It's uh, because uh, of 
of, of the perceived need uh, to regulate uh, information fiduciaries, which are, for those of you who don't know the term of art, are platforms that are collecting personal information and monetizing that through advertising, through our participation of things like Facebook and Twitter. Um, and uh, if there is manipulation going on through targeted advertising, obviously that needs to be, I, I think that democracy requires, and probably you agree, that the, that be surfaced to the extent that it, it can be made transparent. Uh, but the larger question is, uh, if we think the platforms are a threat, then how do we fix the free speech uh, uh, ecosystem, which may be multifactorial? And the quick answer is, well, we have to regulate the platforms. But as I think Julian okay. uh, suggested, uh, uh, you know, it's hard to figure out what that solution looks like in ways that don't empower anti-democratic. Thank uh, you. Now I understand. Um, uh, the difficult there's a good reason that even though we are a good 30 35 years into work on complexity theory we have not developed uh, as robust a relation between that mode of analysis and policy. Uh, it's, um, we don't have models of human and institutional behavior that have the same level of determinacy. Uh, it's really hard to explain and even harder to render tractable. Um, and, uh, that the, the, and, and, and if you think of sort of a trajectory, again, we're sitting here in this auditorium, think of a trajectory, it's precisely the claim that society and social intersections are too complex to fully specify. So you need self-organization through price clearance to achieve the answer that's the foundation of, of Hayek's critique. The problem is that it turns out prices also don't actually end up solving the problem because they are also too lossy in terms of information. And so describing a system that is actually sufficiently complex to capture the most important feedbacks and sufficiently simple to allow you to identify more or less deterministic intervention points is really hard. Um, uh, and so at the moment, what we have is uh, primarily conversational statements about what work and what doesn't work. I think that there are some, work, some of the best work on uh, experimentalism in governance, whether it's in companies or in um, um, uh, regulatory agencies. Uh, I have a little paper where I try to essentially show how the principles of uh, the Internet Engineering Task Force, the Internet Design, late binding design, experimentation, short-term cycles of, of experimentation, failure, and adaptation is the beginning of the answer of how to try solutions when you're faced with an overall understanding that the system mm. is complex without any ability to, to focus distinctly on one input like um, um, uh, bureaucratic reports or like 
prices because none of them actually give you enough information where the you is whoever can act. So the short answer is I don't see it happening soon. I do think that with better data, which is what we're beginning to develop, feeding into models that give up on the idea that there's one clear solution like clarify for markets or clarify for, for uh, administration. But instead, feedback, constant experimentation, feeding back into the practice, experimentation, feeding back into the practice to sense what are more or less stable solutions, that's the closest we can get. And as you've already heard, that's why no one gets it. Let me try just, uh, we're, we're coming close to our, uh, our, our deadline, but I would like to try and squeeze in a couple of more questions before uh, we wrap up. Uh, I suppose uh, over here. I got an easy one for you. Uh, my name's Todd Wiggins. What do you think of um, social media in general? Does it provide a constructive uh, service in your overall opinion, or would you rather us go back to the days when there was no social media and everything was in paper or in television? That's an easy one. Uh, I think that's an easy one. Um, uh, 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 we have no control over it. Uh, all we have is uh, what we do with the times we are given. Um, I think there's good, there's bad. Like any uh, framework, we just have to focus on on how we use it. I was like, I mean, Rebecca, fourth social before you know, if you define social media as platforms run by companies, you know, more centralized, Facebook, Twitter. Before social media, there were decentralized blogging websites. Everybody just had their own site. And so, you know, there, there's been an evolution oh, of centralization. I, uh, I, yeah, you're reminding me of uh, the famous query to Chairman Mao, what's your view of the French Revolution? Uh, and he said it's too soon to tell. Um, and I'm inclined to say something similar about social media. Um, I guess let's, let's go for, why don't we let Professor uh, uh, Bankler pick the last, uh, the last querier. Ask? Thank you. I hope you won't regret it. Uh, Carl Golovin, a retired special agent, U.S. Customs, 9-11 responder, domain reference, and idea lives on .net. Now, Alex Jones, it's interesting. Uh, the two places he never goes with his coverage, he will never discuss the Jesuit military order of the Roman Catholic Church, nor anything Israel-centric. Um, and I know this uh, from your Wikipedia. You're born in Israel and a phenomenally connected person in that you're the last person with no judicial clerkship experience to have clerked for a U.S. Supreme Court justice, Justice Breyer. So uh, you know the law. Now, in your presentation concerning pedophilia, I mean, Jeff Epstein is the real deal, convicted and politically eased out of prosecution. But there's like a separation of church and state in your presentation in that you completely omit, you know, the abundant evidence of uh, in 6% globally of Roman Catholic priests, serial pedophiles, the true movie Spotlight well demonstrates that. But concerning another aspect of the religious pedophilia, and this is a bit off topic, but you of all people would be an expert in the Talmud, and I've sought someone who could explain. People tell me that the Talmud actually endorses pedophilia to an extent. Can you answer that? Uh, the main reason I don't regret calling you because I saw that you were disagreeing and uncomfortable with what I was saying, so I wanted to hear why. Um, I am a lifelong, multi-generational, secular Jew 
uh, from Israel. I know the Talmud as a, in, in little bits and pieces. I have no idea what you're referring to, and I won't pretend uh, uh, to claim uh, to either refute or, or deny uh, um, based on actual knowledge. So um, that's most of all. <laughs> that's my answer. Do why don't we call? close? Why don't we close on a question that is about the the, the topic uh, in the back left? You mentioned the, well, oh, sure. <laughs> Thank you, uh, Stefan Bielski, Professions on Purpose. You mentioned the need for transparency. Uh, who's targeting who? But that's one side of an equation of these algorithms, these platforms know more about us than we know about ourselves. So what about the other side? What could be done or what do you know that is being done so people can sort of build that self-knowledge of what they're sensitive to, what they're mostly likely to do that on an individual basis? Uh, in the same way that we learn if we're sensitive to sugar or gluten or addictions, whether it's gambling or opiates, what could be done there or what, what have you seen that is being done? That's also promise. something that I think you, you were, uh, <laughs> you could, do you want to go well, first? Well, you start, right? you, you can. I, first of all, um, what we know about ourselves and the extent to which we exist in a constantly measured self, whether our measurement is physical or a cultural environment, ends up feeding back and shaping who we are and how self-conscious we are and what we know about ourselves. So I'm not sure it's an absolutely uh, unambiguous, uh, 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 given the choice between having us know as much about ourselves as the companies do and the companies knowing everything, I'd prefer to know less about myself and, know having, and have them know less about me because to me the question of transparency uh, and privacy is fundamentally a question of power. Right. To me, privacy uh, and security are about the ability of individuals to resist being the objects of actions of others, whether these action, others are the state, whether these others are a company. Um, um, and uh, I would much rather find ourselves in a world in which, because we are properly insulated from being observed and manipulated, we, know, we are able to measure our less selves, uh, ourselves less. So that would be my focus, a lot less on, and if I do focus on how much control we have on our data and data about us, I'm much more focused on things like data portability and interoperability that will allow an entrant into the market to actually be able to offer me something I want without some of what I don't want that I'm getting from my current incumbent so that I can switch comfortably and that the fact that I've been in a platform for five, 10 years doesn't become the entry barrier to shifting over. So I'm much more focused. Here's, here's the short version. I'm much more focused on data control and management approaches that insulate individuals from power from the outside on them and that prevent incumbents from preventing entrance from coming in and allowing me to shift than I am about just being able to use the fact that they know so much about me to improve my own self-knowledge. Yep. I want to uh, thank you all for coming out on a Friday after a, uh, a harrowing week, I think. Uh, and. Uh, 
I imagine after a week like this, probably we could all use uh, a cocktail or two. So uh, I do want to enjoy, invite you to join us in, uh, in our atrium uh, for a reception. Uh, copies of Network Propaganda are uh, available on the table outside if anyone wants to purchase one. I know uh, uh, Professor Bankler uh, would probably be willing to sign one if you are uh, very nice to him. Uh, please, again, join us in thanking our speakers uh, and join us in the atrium.